Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Second uh, Samuel 12. If you're new with us today, we've been uh, working our way uh, through this book. And uh, we just kind of go chapter by chapter. We'll work our way all the way through. And, and last week, we came to a very significant, tragic moment in the story of King David's life. And really in the story of, of the whole Bible, God's whole salvation plan. In chapter 11, David... God's chosen king, the man at the center of God's plan to, to bring in his perfect heavenly kingdom, the man described as a God after man's own heart, the main character, in a sense, thus far in his salvation plan, fell headlong into sin. Up to this point, as we've been reading through this book, he has been this, this stalwart of, of integrity. He's used his kingly position to seek justice and righteousness. He's stood strong for the Lord. He's even stood up against giants like Goliath. And he has always served the people, God's people, first. And his kingdom was, was thriving. And then, almost out of nowhere, he commits this horrible, adulterous, treacherous act. He uses his, his position, his, his power, and think of the power he had. He's God's king. He's their visionary leader. He's their spiritual leader. He's, he's the enforcer of the law. He uses that power of position to take advantage of a young woman in his kingdom and to serve his own sensual desires. And then to cover his actions when she gets pregnant, he has her husband, who's a good man, murdered. And as a reader, if you're reading this story for the first time, you almost get whiplash from this. It's, it's this sudden, complete U-turn in his life. This... this hero that you were cheering for is suddenly this despicable, slimy character, this bad man that you're angry at. You're kind of spun around. You feel like, what, what's happening? I mean, when Saul, the king before him, had failed, the kingdom spiraled down and it was ripped from him. And we kind of expect this here. We expect justice. God must right this horrible wrong. There must be punishment. There must be judgment. There must be retribution of some kind. We know this just has to happen. In fact, David himself makes this very clear in the story because when Nathan comes with him with this parable, this analogy of what he's done, he gets to the end of that story and he says, this man must die. He knows. Judgment must come. That's how we feel. We sense it as a readers. We demand it. And make no mistake, these things do come upon David. All of that, this judgment and, and retribution, they come upon him in spades. But the shocking thing about this text is that all of it comes in the midst of 
and is about God working out his grace to David. That's what's shocking about this text. This passage of rebuke and punishment and death and judgment and warning is actually revealing to us the nature of God's grace to him from beginning to end. Grace that will bring hope to David and hope to Israel and actually still brings hope to us. So what I want us to do this morning as we work through it is notice this. Notice God's grace in this. I want us to examine the elements, the anatomy of his incredible grace. We're so used to it. We talk about grace. It's kind of the central tenet of our faith. We say we're saved by grace. It's this familiar word. But we get a chance now to slow down and think about what this means. To break it down to its basic parts. And the first element of grace that we see here is simply that God's grace is pursuant. God's grace pursues David, pursues his people. This is emphasized in the very first sentence of the text. Look at verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. I just want you to catch that word sent because in the chapter before, 11 times that word is used of David and his sin. Chapter 11, verse 1 In the spring of war, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Verse 4 So David sent messengers and took her. Verse 6 So David sent the word to Joab Send me Uriah to the Tite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. In verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news. And it finishes in verse 27 of chapter 7. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. It's just all through. I didn't even read all of them. But when we get to chapter 12, David, God, excuse me, is the one who is doing the sending. God sent Nathan to David with his word, this convicting parable. God starts this gracious work out of himself towards David. He makes the first move. He initiates after David. We tend to not think about this much when it comes to grace. But it's a very important aspect. It's always initiated out of God. Him reaching to us. David, you've got to realize, in this circumstance, is not seeking God at all. It's been a year, over a year, since his sin. He wasn't sitting there, you know, full of guilt, going after God begging him for forgiveness, praying for God to fix what he has done, and so God responds and then relents and and answers him. No. He's tried to put the whole incident behind him like nothing happened. He's hiding like Adam in the garden when God comes to find him and says, Who, me? What? He is deluding himself and trying to delude others that no real wrong has happened. 
Remember last week when the messenger came to David from, from Joab to tell David that Uriah had died in battle? And we know it's because David had, had orchestrated the circumstances, right, so that all the troops would move away from Uriah and he'd be left alone and exposed and killed. Do you remember David's response in verse 25 of chapter 11? David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. David, he, he tries to play it off like, Hey, hey, you know, bad things happen. It's nobody's fault. Don't worry about it. Don't let Joab worry about it. It's so callous. It's so full of deception and self-delusion. Try to act like it just happened. And now time has passed and David is trying to move on. This is often what we do with our sin, isn't it? Especially the big shameful ones that we can't even believe we did. Just put enough time and, and distance, that's what we try to do, and convince ourselves that it, that it never really happened. David is, is caught in the deceit of his own denial. This is why he is so suckered in by Nathan's little parable, by the way. When you first read this, you kind of go, come on, David. He's talking about you, clearly. You know he's talking about you, right? I mean, come on. How can you not see it? But he doesn't because he is in such denial. He's convinced himself. My friends, we don't seek after God's grace. We on our own do not pursue his mercy because we are deceivers and deniers and self-justifiers. We're like the Pharisees that when Jesus says that he's come for the sick, say, oh, you mean those people. This is who we are in our sin. Do you know what the Bible says about every human being prior to Jesus seeking us out and saving us and putting his Holy Spirit in us to convict us of sin? You know what the Bible says about every one of us? It says there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Nobody seeks. But as much as David lives in denial of his sin, his sin is still real and it's a Affecting him and destroying him. He says later in the Psalms, as he reflects on this time in his life, we had it read in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up like the heat of summer. As he denied his sin, it was actually killing him. He felt like he was wasting away. It's like if a person is denying their cancer, they can deny it all they want, but it's still there, destroying. Or the drug addict denying their problem. Hey, I've taken this all my life. It hasn't affected me at all why their teeth are rotting out of their face. David is sitting on his little throne wasting away in his delusion. That's what sin does. It's all of us in our sin. And justice would be, let it happen. You're getting what you deserve, David. You did this. You're in denial of it. 
So wallow in it while it destroys you. That's justice. But God's grace is pursuant. He comes after his people. He sent Jesus into a world, not of people who were seeking him, but enemies rejecting him. And he continues to send his spirit to bring conviction to our calloused, denying hearts. This is such good news. So great to think about. I may be very successful in my sin. I may fail miserably. I might even be successful in hiding it and denying it so that nobody knows. So my, but, but, but my sin is eating me up. My God won't leave me there. He's not going to let me rot away in my very soul. He won't lead me to my destruction. He will pursue me with his grace. And this doesn't mean it will be easy. It will probably be horrible and painful and hard, as we will see with David. But it will be God's good grace. Which brings me to the second thing we see about God's grace here. And that is that God's grace exposes, not just pursues, doesn't just pursue David, but in his grace he exposes David. He exposes us. It, it, it always shows us our true selves. It shows us who we are in our sin. It's like this mirror, this spiritual mirror that he holds up and says, take a hard look. And as much as we try to squint and, and, and look away and dodge, we can't. That's what happens as Nathan brings this, this parable. David is unwittingly forced to look at himself. He's looking at himself and his own sin before he even knows this, isn't he? Isn't he? Nathan doesn't just come to David and say, hey, you sinned. And David goes, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. No, he comes and he he says, I have a story to tell you. And, and I, I, you can see David, he's thinking, hey, he's telling me about a real situation. He's not thinking it's his situation, but he thinks, he's telling me about a real situation here. I'm the judge and the king. I've got to decide on this. He's thinking hard about this situation. He's got he, to rectify this situation that's happened to this poor man. And in doing so, he's actually taking a thorough look at himself and his own sin. So at the end, when Nathan says, you are that man, this is you, Dave, he's shattered by it. And what is exposed about David, about his sin? What does this story of this parable expose about the nature of his sin? It's so rich. The first thing he exposes, I think, is the stupidity of his sin. The absolute stupidity of it. Look at what Nathan says to David after identifying him as, as, him as the man in the parable who, who stole the, the lamb from this poor man. So look what he says in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, 
I would add to you as much and more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? He says, David, you're the rich man in the parable who has everything and more. Grace upon grace, God has given you your kingship, your deliverance, the wealth of your household, and much more. He's even allowed you many wives. Every good grace God has given to you, David, all the wealth of a king. Yet you had to go take this poor man's dearest thing. You had to take what wasn't yours. Why? like Adam and Eve in the garden where God has provided everything for them and it's perfect and wonderful and beautiful but they have to come take that fruit that's not theirs this is who we are in our sin stupid senseless God has graced us with everything in our life our very breath He's delivered us on top of that, out of our enslavement. He's given us salvation at the cost of his son. He's blessed us with eternal life. He's given us a future and a hope. The inheritance of his son, everything that is Christ in heaven is ours. Every good blessing in his life is from him. Yet we despise his word and choose evil. It's senseless. You ever kind of confronted with the stupidity of your sin? You have that moment? Maybe God has given you this beautiful wife who loves you and has given himself to you, herself to you with everything, soul and body, all that she is, yet you find yourself lusting after some pixelated image of a woman on a screen who's really just the pawn of some pimp trying to get your credit card number. Stupid. Perhaps, perhaps God has, has graced you with Wonderful family, wonderful children who want nothing more than to spend time with you and know you and love you, but you still find yourself constantly working way too much so you can get that new thing, that boat or that car or that house that will just take more of your time and your money and then rust and rot away. It's stupid. Or maybe you find yourself just ignoring them in front of the TV so you can have your me time. Stupid. God, in his grace shows us the senselessness of our sin. He makes us take a hard, painful look. But God also shows David through this parable not just the stupidity of his sin, but the damage of his sin, the destruction that he's caused relationally. He says in verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He won't let David minimize his sin and remain in denial, you know. No, David, this didn't just happen. It wasn't that he was out at battle and, you know, you might die in battle, you might not, and he, and he died, I mean... Collateral damage of an over-eagerness to serve his country. No, he wasn't merely struck down by the Ammonites. He says twice to David, you killed him. 
You notice how he says that two different ways in the sentence? You struck him down, and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You did it, David. Like the man in this parable stealing the poor man's precious lamb when he had everything. A crime that so infuriated David himself, when he heard it, he called for the guy's death. That's you, David. Look in the mirror. We're so like David, aren't we? We get outraged by the sin of others. He can listen to this parable and be outraged. Able to see their issues and their faults with clarity, but completely blind to our own. But our gracious God, he exposes us. He'll make us face the damage and destruction, the relational carnage of our sin. We don't want to see it. We don't want to own it. So we will just keep denying it's too heavy. The relational damage that we've done, especially to our, our loved ones, it's shameful and it's ugly. We'll do anything not to own it. We'll delude ourselves with rationalizations that it's not our fault. We'll distract ourselves with endless entertainment to not even think about it. We'll numb ourselves with self-medication. We'll divert ourselves with, by focusing on the sins of others. But God, in his gracious love, will grab our face and he'll make us look at it. He'll make us face the truth. Why? Why the painful reality check? Well, look at verse 13. Finally, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He does it to bring restoration. The ultimate grace of God, God's grace pursues us. It exposes us so as to restore us. And note that it starts with repentance. David, after over a year of denial and delusion that was causing him to waste away as a person, finally owns his sin and confesses his sin out loud, he finally says it. I imagine he kind of wailed it out. I've sinned against the Lord. It was this painful, wonderful, burden-lifting release, this honest confession, finally. Have you ever had that moment where you, where you finally said it? admitted it, got it out there. I've had many of them. I remember early on in my life when I was a kid, and I've told this story before, but I, I was a guy who, pyro, I made fires way too often. One time with my friend, we were making a fire, and we actually burnt down one of his family's avocado trees, and the fire department had to put it out. And his parents drove me home to my house and dropped me off, and they didn't tell my parents. And I walked in the door. I said, how was this? I said, oh, it was fine. <laughs> and I knew, I knew what I'd done. I knew I needed to tell them the truth. I, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I couldn't sleep at night. My mom kept asking me what was wrong. I thought I was sick. 
Finally, about two weeks later, they found out. And they cornered me in my room. I said, hey, is there anything you'd like to tell us? No. You sure? I broke a bottle in the street. No, I don't th no, not that. I think it has to do with fire. And they tell me to this day, they said, it was everything they could do not to laugh because they said, I threw myself back on my bed and I grabbed my neck and said, I've been trying to say it, I can't say it. <laughs> and I got spanked. But man, I could breathe again. It was out there. This gut-wrenching, God-forced exposure had brought David to real, honest confession of his sin, to own it. But of course, the restoration of David didn't stop there. It wasn't just about the catharsis of getting it off his chest. Nathan responds to David in verse 13 with these words. It's unbelievable. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He's forgiven. The punishment that he deserves, the judgment that he himself, he pronounced, death, is removed. His life is restored because God has put away his sin. It's one of those really mysterious phrases until we get to Jesus, isn't it? It's like, how do you do that? He has put away his sin. He takes it away like it never happened. Why? Just grace. Sheer mercy. Is there, does this mean there will be no repercussions in, in David's life? No. The ongoing consequences of his sin are huge. His family spirals down into dysfunction and destruction. In verse 11, we're told that the sword will not depart from his house. And read on in the story, his sons are taken by the sword one after another. And because of his adulterous actions, the Lord will allow his neighbor to lie with his wives in public. You know who his neighbor is? We find out that neighbor is. It's his son Absalom in, in, in chapter 16 when he rebels against him and he takes his concubines to the roof so that all can see his shameful acts to shame his father. And finally, the worst of all, God will take his precious baby son away. He'll take him to be with him in heaven. And David will not know the blessing of knowing that son. It's a severe discipline, a hard consequence of his sin. But in all of it, God is working out his full restoration of David. Bringing him, in a sense, back to life. Back to right relationship before him. God, in his grace, has restored him in confession and restored him in forgiveness, and now he restores him to his to full faith. You see, unconfessed sin, that's what it does. It, it stops our faith in a way, that trust in God, that relationship is broken. But now we see that restored in this next section. The full restoration of David's faith. In verses 16 to 23, we have this kind of strange scene where David spends seven days flat out on his face, weeping and pleading for the life of his dying son. 
He's fervently fasting and mourning and, and praying. He's so upset that his servants are afraid to tell him when his son has died. They're afraid that David will harm himself. But when David realizes that his son has died, he doesn't go into more extreme despair. He doesn't weep all the more and tear his clothes and scream out, why? He actually gets up. Verse 20, let's read it. It says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. So his servants just, they just have to ask. They don't understand this. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You, you fasted and wept for your child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He's turned away from his denial and delusion to real faith. A faith that looks at his gracious God, knowing he might act towards him in undeserved mercy at any time, because that's his nature. He's been so gripped by God's grace. He knows it's so real. He pleads for it. But his faith has also developed to the point that he trusts God when his answer is no. Because he knows he's gracious. He knows he is good. So he will trust his sovereign will when it's really hard. Thy will be done. And finally, it's a faith that gets up from the hardest tragedy and looks forward in hope. He says, I will go to him. He knows he will see his son again because he's experienced the grace of God for real in his life, from the depths of his sin, knowing the depths of his sin, and then knowing the grace of God. It's changed him. He's been forgiven and restored. He has what I like to call a grace faith. My friends, this, this is the Christian life. Grace faith. Looking at our gracious God expectantly because His grace has already gripped us. Resting in His sovereign will and goodness even when things are really hard and we don't understand because His grace has gripped looking forward in hope because his grace has gripped us. And as we finish, we can't miss the kind of last point of grace in this section. This is really what brings this text to us. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, 
You see the footnote? What's that mean? Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. David, out of the grace of God, is given another son. A beloved son of the Lord. This is the son of promise. Because although we may be unfaithful to God, he's always faithful to his promise. And through this son's lineage, God will keep his promise to bring the ultimate beloved son, his son Jesus. The one who is sent into this world to us. The one who is grace upon grace. The one who will put away all our sin because it's put upon him at the cross so that we may receive the pursuing, exposing, restoring grace of God. See, what's amazing about this story is that we get to read it like David read the parable from Nathan. It's about us. Unbelievably, we are that man. David in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to us in your son. Thank you for exposing us. Help us if we haven't, Lord. To really see our sin. To see all its ugliness. To own it. To admit it before you. And to know your restoration in your son. Pray these things in his name. Amen. <laughs>